Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, and this is, uh, I guess, the beginning of a Carolina Newsmaker programs because we are beginning to look at a change in our government, and we thought it would be appropriate to bring back a frequent guest on our program, Congressman David Price, who represents North Carolina's 4th District and has for 17 terms. This It was just recently elected for his 17th term. It's almost unbelievable, David. Well, when I look back and think about it, it is unbelievable. I remember uh, the night of my first election, one of the leading uh, lights on the other side says, well, it looks like we've elected another one-term congressman. <laughs> and it didn't, didn't quite turn out that way, although I did manage to lose an election in, uh, in 94 and, and made a comeback. It, uh, it has been an a interesting time to, uh, to serve this district and, and to serve repeated uh, changes in this district, as I'm sure we're going to discuss. Uh, this, yeah, is yet another, this is yet another fourth district, but I'm, yeah. uh, I'm good to go and looking forward to the new, new Congress. And chances are, after the census is over, it'll uh, the district will change again, because we likely will welcome a 14th uh, district to North Carolina, and uh, uh, that uh, was good. Now uh, you're the dean of the uh, delegation now. Yes, I am. And and by the way, on your on that latter point, uh, both Deborah Ross and I in the second and fourth districts uh, start out with uh, about 120 to 150 thousand too many constituents. So to speak, because the uh, you know the numbers of the redrawn districts are based on uh, census ten years ago. So uh, there'll be some changes in terms of population, and then adding that 14th district. So I think it's fair to say the districts we have right now are not long for this world. <laughs> um, well, that, that's uh, one of the blessings of a growing state, or uh, yeah, that yes, we, it is. Uh, have some additional uh, leverage in uh, Congress and and. Uh, uh, and of course, North Carolina has become more and more an important state uh, because uh, uh, we are overall a purple state with lots and lots of registered unaffiliates. And uh, the unaffiliates actually uh, sort of hold the key to all the, the districts all across the state. They really do. It's, uh, it's the fastest growing segment of the electorate. And uh... Uh, these are, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. A lot of these voters uh, do lean one way or the other, but uh, in, in the end, in a, in a state this closely divided, how those unaffiliated swing is probably going to determine uh, most statewide elections. Well, one of the things we want to talk about in this first segment of uh, this week's program is the continuing concern about uh, uh, COVID-19 and the uh, virus. Uh, the numbers continue to go up. And I think uh, uh, in one respect, it's uh, it's probably something we should expect uh, because if each person that has it only infects one or one and a half or two people before they know that they are contagious, the, the numbers are going to kind of keep rising. But we sooner or later got to bring this thing down and uh, uh, recognize that this is a long-term problem. So what do you see as the steps that uh, the new administration will probably undertake to uh, help fight and bring into control this, this uh, COVID-19 situation? 
Well, long, long term, of course, the most important thing is to <coughs> stay behind the development of uh, vaccines and therapeutics that will uh, let us control the, uh, the virus and its spread and, and treat it when it does occur. So uh, we, we need to just keep those efforts um, at, um, at the maximum level. Uh, but in the meantime, we, we really do have a, a national tragedy unfolding and an administration that, uh, uh, having mismanaged it grossly earlier, is, is almost giving up the, the game, which is, uh, which is just not acceptable. We, we, we've got to find some way, and I hope Joe Biden and the transition team, if there's one area where it's important that we have cooperation and that we have a concerted effort, it would be this one. And um, so it's desperately important that uh, <clears throat> the Trump administration uh, get hold of this and get a hold of it in, uh, in cooperation with the, uh, the Biden team. I, I don't think the Trump administration is ever going to do a, uh, a national testing and tracing program. I, I, I just uh, think, that, think they're not going to mount the kind of effort that's needed. So that is going to remain for, for Biden to do that. And he's assembled a first-rate task force that I think will advise him very soundly about uh, how to uh, how to handle this in various parts of the country as uh, and to contain outbreaks uh, uh, quickly and and uh, carefully, uh, you know, until the until the vaccine is uh, available. But uh, I'm really worried about the near term, the next couple of months, uh, and uh, of all the times to have a uh, a president who just washes his hands of of, of a problem. And I have a non-cooperative transition arrangement. This is uh, this is the worst. You know, one of the things that's a little frightening to me, Congressman, is the fact that uh, uh, the public wants so much to get back to normal that they are rushing things. I just uh, just five minutes ago read a report about what's happening on Thanksgiving travel on airlines. Airlines are actually anticipating a huge number of increase uh, passenger bookings for Thanksgiving and. Uh, this just sort of shows two things. One, that people are just really desperate to get back to normal. And two, this is not the time to do it. Both, both points are, are absolutely right. Uh, uh, I think everybody agrees that one of the areas now that's, um, that's not, um, not under control is this area of small gatherings small and not so small gatherings. Uh, Roy Cooper, our governor has wisely, uh, gone back to a lower uh, limit for uh, indoor gatherings, but uh, people are getting very lax about uh, family and friends and informal gatherings, and that's where a lot of the spread uh, takes place. Um, you know, a lot of this is still a matter of, um, of masking and distancing, though. And it just, it's just, if there's one thing I would hope for from this president, you know, with limited expectations, but one thing he might do is uh, once and for all say, put on those masks and observe the distancing. And uh, if, uh, if you're gonna be in uh, congregated settings, at least have a mask on and at least uh, observe the distancing. And that, uh, that, could, that won't totally control it, but it will uh, result in tens of thousands fewer deaths. And uh, one would hope that um, in these waning days of his administration, the president would at least uh, Make a make a strong recommendation along those lines. If he won't, the rest of us should. We just have to urge it on our uh, fellow citizens that masking is a uh, it's not only a patriotic act; it's an act of um, of compassion and consideration for your fellow citizens. 
Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting that we uh, haven't, uh, because it, uh, there was very good news this week about the uh, further development of the effectiveness of the vaccine that is being uh, developed by Pfizer. And of course, there are other vaccines that are being developed. And uh, the, the uh, medical community that I've been in touch with say that the, uh, the likelihood of good vaccines is, is, is really possible. Uh, but uh, one of the things I think we're going to come to grips with is we're not ever going to wipe out this because we've been fighting ordinary flu for years and we still have an outbreak every year. So we're going to have COVID-19 around for some time. So uh, the, what I'm leading to is what are you hearing about uh, the continued development of therapeutics? Because we will, even if we bring this thing under control, we're still going to have COVID-19 just as we have flu and common colds. Yes, we are. And uh, this is a challenge with respect to the flu also. You know, we have Tamiflu, we have uh, some uh, some treatments for the flu. Uh, they're not perfected though. I mean, uh, people who get the flu still are in, in, in danger of, uh, of a kind of worsening condition. And uh, so uh, you're absolutely right. The, uh, this, this uh, virus is gonna be in the air, so to speak, for a, for a long time. Hopefully it will be uh, uh, contained and controlled, but um, uh, still, you're talking about many cases that will require treatment, and, and it's important to have the best possible treatments uh, developed. And, um, you know, the, that's what the antibodies are all about, the, 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 that, that class of treatments that uh, uh, strengthens people's ability to fight the virus. That's, um, that's important. That's close behind the development of a, of a preventive vaccine. What are you hearing about the, uh, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric before the election about continued assistance for the public, especially those affected economically, either by losing their jobs or, or other uh, situations that come about because of the COVID-19 situation. And uh, additional economic reform is being discussed in Congress. Where does that stand now? And when do you think that might come to some conclusion? It should have come to a conclusion before the election. Uh, and uh, as you well know, the uh, the Heroes Act, which is uh, the House uh, House version of, of this relief package that reduces the unemployment assistance that gives support to state and local governments and the services they provide, uh, that uh, puts in place a, uh, a national system for testing and tracing. That uh, that was never taken up by the Senate, and it was never successfully negotiated uh, before the election. So. Uh, the first part of the answer, I think, is that in this lame duck session of the Congress, which will, will start very soon, that that should be a, a primary goal. We shouldn't wait for the new Congress and the new administration to do this. We should get um, the most uh, robust possible uh, relief package uh, enacted here in this post-election uh, period. Uh, there will be a need to revisit that, I'm sure, in the new Congress. But uh, by then, of course, you're hopefully in a, in a situation where it's not just relief, but it's also recovery. And um, it's, a, it's a huge economic recovery uh, undertaking. And we've talked on this show a lot about the need for uh, <clears throat> a fresh start in infrastructure in this country and that that was an area of, uh, of underinvestment in our country. And that would include not just transportation infrastructure, but also uh, broadband, also housing infrastructure. These things, I think, even without a pandemic, would be a very high priority to get going in a more vigorous way. But in the face of the economic downturn, this, this kind of gets folded together, I think, in a, uh, a recovery package, but also a, 
a kind of fresh start for the country in making these investments, making ourselves more competitive, opening up economic opportunity. That's a big challenge of this incoming uh, Biden administration. And I'm um, looking forward to be part of this as uh, the chairman of the Transportation and Housing Funding Subcommittee in the, in the House. We'll, we'll make a down payment on it in our regular appropriations bill. But we need a, a major initiative here, just as we did uh, with President Obama in 09 with the Recovery Act coming out of the Great Recession. I hope we will have more bipartisan cooperation now than we did then. And uh, if there's any president that should be able to uh, encourage that, it is Joe Biden. But uh, uh, there are a lot of questions about uh, the direction our politics have gone in the meantime, you know, and to what extent it's going to be possible to come together on this. We've got to do it. Our guest is Congressman David Price, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Congressman David Price. We thought it was very appropriate to have uh, Congressman Price on to sort of talk about what's going to happen in the lame duck session of the Congress. Uh, and of course, he has just been reelected re to his 17th term, becoming the dean of the congressman in North Carolina. And uh, as such, he has a tremendous amount of uh, built up uh, uh, standing in, in, in the Congress. And one of the things that uh, Congressman Price is extremely well known for is his understanding of foreign affairs. And so uh, in this segment, uh, Congressman, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about uh, what effect the change in uh, the presidency will have on foreign affairs and what do you think are the key things that we should be looking for? This is a very important election in terms of foreign affairs. and. Uh, the whole world seems to be immediately uh, recognizing that we have had a uh, we've had a president who uh, had very little uh, regard for our traditional alliances for the whole uh, post World War II architecture that we built up of the uh, of, of the democracies uh, cooperating and supporting one another and uh, reaching out to developing countries and um, and all the rest. Um, he displayed very little interest in this. In fact, 
uh, had an affinity, a clear affinity for uh, for Russia's Putin and Hungary's Orban and these other uh, autocrats. And uh, it left a lot of the world, uh, most of the world puzzled, I think, as to uh, what America stood for and how durable our role was going to be as the linchpin of these alliances and the uh, exemplar of human rights and democracy uh, worldwide. So uh, that's the that's the uh, question this election posed. You know, on the campaign trail, it wasn't always, uh, didn't always have top billing, but around the world, people were watching this election very, very carefully. And uh, early indications are that, um, as Joe Biden says, America's back and, and countries uh, that have counted on us uh, are encouraged that America is back. So what comes first? There'll be some immediate reassurances um, <clears throat> with respect to the NATO alliance, I think, with respect to uh, to human rights situations around the world. Uh, there, there will be uh, there will be a, um, a re-entry into the uh, Paris Climate Accord, I think, immediately. There will be a re-entry into the World Health Organization immediately. There will be an attempt to reconstitute uh, and uh, a, a nuclear agreement with Iran. Not quite sure what form that will take because uh, Trump has done great damage there and has left uh, Iran much closer now to nuclear capability than he was when Trump came into office. So I would say that's a, a big challenge, but there will be immediate efforts uh, there. So, so part of it's restoration, part of it's uh, reassurance, part of it is restoring uh, and, and, um, and repairing damage. And then the question is, what kind of new, um, what kind of new initiatives might we, we expect? I've been in conversations uh, this week with uh, people who are very concerned about uh, the the Freedom House, for example. People very concerned about the uh, decline of democracies and human rights situations worldwide. And it's um, it's not um, it 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 is. It is a, not a trivial uh, development. It's a very serious development, and and uh, the Chinese and Russian influence is uh, is working against us there. And uh, so so there's a great need for um, America to uh, to reinstate itself as uh, as a, as a as a world leader. And uh, I expect uh, I expect very strong appointments of the State Department, the Defense Department, uh, and I expect. Um, very vigorous discussions going forward about how we quickly, how we quickly get this uh, on the right track. Early, uh, well, early on in the administration of uh, President Trump, uh, there was a lot of interest in the North Korean situation, and there was the famous visit in the, uh, and of course the, the statement by the president that we had a new relationship with North Korea. But in fact, nothing has really changed there. What do you think now? the situation will be because uh, uh, President Trump seemed to have forged some sort of a relationship with the North Korean dictator, but uh, uh, didn't make much progress. I think he not only didn't make much progress, I think we went backwards. I, I think uh, I think Trump granted to uh, the dictator a, a kind of legitimacy on the world stage that uh, he did not earn. And every indication is that uh, Korea is more dangerously armed with nuclear capabilities now than it was when Trump took office. This has been a cover, in other words, for North Korea doing uh, what it was doing with uh, with a, an attempt to really blackmail the rest of the world. Uh, I, uh, you know, there, 
North Korea has been a vexing, uh, dangerous problem for every administration that I've been and uh, have served under. Both Democrats and Republicans have had, uh, no, nobody can claim, claim great success with this uh, challenge. So this is a big one for Joe Biden. At least he can get off of the false hopes and the uh, flattery and the uh, love letters and all this nonsense and can put that relationship on a more, um, on a more business-like and professional footing. And I think, you know, this is part of the equation with China. And, and that's a bigger question. How do, you, how do you calibrate the relationship with China, which is going to be adversarial, but it's also got to have cooperative aspects. And I think, still think that um, the North Korea challenge is not going to be dealt with without Chinese cooperation. Bottom line. And were, that was that was not something that Trump had any understanding of. It's something I think Biden does have an understanding of, and it's going to be part of our overall uh, diplomatic uh, effort. Even for people who try to keep up with the Mideast, it's very difficult to, uh, unless, it, this is sort of like going to a football game and not having a program and not knowing the numbers of the players. <laughs> Uh, but you are uh, well-versed in the, uh, the uh, situation in the Mideast. Um, we have made apparently a little bit of progress over there, but what, what's the status now of the Mideast? You've uh, uh, made some reference to Iran, but what about the rest of the Mideast? Where do we stand now? We, uh, we stand at a, um, at a, very, uh, a very delicate uh, situation, I think. And it does have some promise, but it's got great peril as well. Um, Trump has uh, subcontracted our Middle East policy largely to Prime Minister Netanyahu and to, uh, to um, MBS, the uh, crown prince in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he has totally abandoned any effort at um, detente with the Iran and has trashed the nuclear agreement. So he's clearly taken sides within the Middle East and there has been some short-term benefit for that for Israel, for example, in, uh, in encouraging some of the uh, Sunni states uh, allied, with, uh, allied with the Saudi Arabia, more or less. Those states have given recognition to Israel. And that, that recognition I've worked for for a long time. Back in the 90s, I was traveling to the Middle East with uh, a group called the Center for Middle East Peace, and we were encouraging uh, uh, trade offices and other kinds of outreach with the Israel trying to uh, build the way toward a two-state solution and a and a lasting peace. So, so the recognitions in and of themselves are a positive thing. But the uh, the problem is the recognitions have taken place in a uh, in an overall environment where uh, basic Israeli-Palestinian peace is farther away than ever. And the whole process now is burdened with a totally one-sided Trump proposal, which will never be acceptable to the uh, Palestinians. And I think in the end, the Arab powers in the Middle East can't, uh, can't settle for it either. There needs to be a genuine two-state solution. It will, um, it will of course, ensure Israel's uh, stability and security, uh, but it will also uh, recognize the aspirations of the Palestinian people and understand that uh, for Israel itself to be a democratic and uh, state and a Jewish homeland, there's going to have to be a solution for the Palestinians. And uh, Trump has had no interest in that. He's taken us farther from that kind of solution. He's marginalized the Palestinians totally, not, not only moving the uh, embassy to Jerusalem without any kind of accommodation on the Israelis' part, but closing the Palestinian office in D.C. 
closing the consulate in Jerusalem that dealt with the Palestinians, cutting off aid to the West Bank and Gaza, uh, and on and on it goes. So there too, it's a combination of, uh, of repair work. I hope Joe Biden will, will reopen those offices and, and, and reopen some kind of uh, dialogue with uh, the Palestinian side. And of course, we'll be, uh, we'll be uh, supportive of Israel as, as well. But uh, resume the role as a kind of broker where, where we're trying to work toward a, uh, a long-term solution that's in everybody's interest, as opposed to throwing in with uh, Israel's current right-wing leadership. Uh, we've got about a minute left in this segment. Uh, so let's talk about our next door neighbors, Mexico and Canada, or uh, what kind of shape are we in there and what do we need to do there? Well, we've had a, uh, had a mixed picture there. Uh, Trump had made a big thing of NAFTA and how it was the worst trade agreement ever. And uh, so he made a big show of renegotiating NAFTA and, and came up with something very much like NAFTA. But he labeled it a new, a new agreement, and uh, and I think in in uh, in some respects it is an improvement. Uh, there were there were some updating that needed to be done, and and uh, it, it 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 is uh, it's a positive achievement, but it, it is one that he has vastly oversold and misrepresented. But it's an achievement, and we need to build on that. We have a new NAFTA in place. And I think uh, a, a trading um, relationship with Canada and Mexico that uh, we should in, enforce the, uh, the elements of it, designed to make it uh, fair and uh, equitable. But uh, that's, uh, that's, that's working for us going, going forward. I think a lot of the, uh, the theatrics about, uh, on the one hand, slapping tariffs on Canadian products and and, and then on the other hand, uh, labeling Mexicans uh, rapists and murderers, you know, this sort of stuff uh, hopefully will instantly end and will lead to improved uh, relations uh, with both countries. Our guest is Congressman David Price, who recently, this past week or so, was uh, reelected to his 17th term, is uh, representing the 4th District of North Carolina. And we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. 
Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with our guest, uh, Congressman David Price, who's, been, I don't know how many times, uh, Congressman, you've been on this program, but we always enjoy our visits because uh, uh, you always bring a great insight on what's happening on Capitol Hill. And uh, the next uh, several months are going to be very interesting because uh, we're going to have a change in administration. And uh, that's uh, creates a lot of interesting things. One of the things that uh, did not change or apparently has not changed, subject to a runoff election in Georgia, is the control of the United States Senate appears to still be in the hands of the Republicans. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that could, if both of those seats in uh, Georgia turn Democratic, it will be a, a uh, tie. But uh, I think most folks uh, might uh, think that's a long shot right now. So let's talk a little bit about partisanship and how do we create a better situation of dialogue between the two parties than existed under President Trump? That's a really important question. And I uh, I think we need to make a, a good, honest effort to uh, to to reach out on both sides and, and to achieve uh, a, a better cooperative uh, relationship. And, and uh, the things we've been talking about earlier in the program just underscore the need for that. We, we still have a we still have a pandemic to bring under control. We still have and uh, we have an enormous uh, job of economic recovery. I don't want to go down the path of 2009 again, where the Republicans just dig in and oppose everything Obama did. I that that uh, that that hobbled the recovery back then, and it'd be absolutely disastrous now. So so we have to find a way. There are some there are some promising signs. I think. Uh, Joe Biden, first of all, if there's anybody who should be able to do this on the Democratic side, it is Joe Biden with his history of, uh, of, of cooperative relations. He and uh, McConnell, I think, personally have a good relationship. I think both parties with regard to the Senate races have a lot to be uh, modest about. You know, there were some disappointing uh, losses on both sides, uh, a 50-50 split or a 51-49 split is, uh, is, is really very, very close, very close. And, and it ought to tell leaders all around that uh, the country is not all of one mind. The Senate is not all of one mind. And, and there needs to be some coming together, especially with respect to what it's fair to call emergency needs for the country. So I'll tell you where I'm gonna start and where I think maybe this whole thing starts is with, uh, is with appropriations. I might say that because it's my committee. But I think I'm warranted in saying it because uh, appropriations does have a history as one of the more cooperative areas, <coughs> even, even under the polarization of recent years. We've managed to come together on appropriations bills uh, quite often. The, the committee I chair, Transportation and Housing, is one where, um, where we have, have come together uh, quite nicely, as Senate and House, Democrats and Republicans. You know, so the first test is going to be, first of all, another relief bill. And then secondly, the regular appropriations bills for 2021, which, uh, you know, the continuing resolution expires in the middle of December. So we got to do something about that. And then thirdly, a serious recovery package. And in all of these areas, I would, I would hope that the traditional bipartisan cooperation that we've had on appropriations, first of all, it could work for us in those instances, but also it might be an example for the way the rest of the Congress might operate. Uh 
I'm going to make a statement because we alluded earlier in the program to the fact that there's a growing number of people, especially in North Carolina, who are registering as unaffiliated. And uh, the statement I'm going to make, and I'd just like to hear your comment on it, is when are both parties going to recognize, both parties, that this increase in uh, registration as unaffiliated is a sign that, uh, that there's a growing discontent with both parties? that uh, people are not satisfied with the Democrats or the Republicans in large numbers? Well, that's a fair question. And uh, the, the, way, uh, the way the Republicans have reacted and the way some in our party want to react is by uh, doubling down, doubling down on our, uh, our uh, ideology and our uh, political beliefs and uh, shoring up our base. Uh, instead of going after those uh, voters who, as you say, for whatever reason, they may be disillusioned, they may be genuinely uh, neutral, whatever, um, they aren't affiliated with either either party. So uh, I, uh, I want to see my party uh, maintain a big tent. And I think we did in the 2018 elections. I think we did that in the way we campaigned for Joe Biden. Uh, there's some infighting in the party right now, I think, that needs to be resolved in favor of a... Uh, a broad-based approach. Republicans long ago have given far too much to their um, extreme right wing. And now the Trumpian um, wing of the party seems dominant. That's, that's a very dangerous um, development. And it, um, Republicans should see that as, uh, yeah, it may be promising in the near term, but it also is going to limit their appeal to that middle of the electorate that you're talking about. Now, I would, I would, let me just add one thing, Don. I think to those voters who are signing up as independents, I'd say this to them though. You know, that's, um, that's, that's uh, in itself a significant act. And, and I would hope a certain number of people, young people especially as they come into the electorate, would, uh, would kind of get past just total cynicism and would really ask themselves, well, nothing's perfect, nothing's quite in line with exactly what I believe, but on the whole, wouldn't I be better off signing up with a political party and trying to influence that party? That that would help us out. That would help well, us with the program I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, what happens is uh, the, the middle of both parties are the most likely to leave the parties because uh, exactly what you're talking about, about uh, the theory that's, uh, that some in both parties believe of polarization or increasing their base. Let me ask you another question. I'll sort of change the subject. Uh, who are some of the up-and-comers in the Democratic Party that we should be keeping our eyes on as far as those who might be leading our country in the next uh, 10 or 12 years? Who are some that you're impressed with right now from across the, uh, across the nation? Well, you know, I think the, the Democrats uh, lined up on the debate stage for the presidential contest were, um, were, were a pretty impressive uh, group. Um, and within the Congress, there are there are, are many good leaders. We, uh, it's uh, you know not a secret that we have uh, a uh, a group of uh, very senior leaders in the in the Democratic Party with Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn. But I would say right beneath that, and without any clear favorites emerging right now, you know there are people like uh, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, people like uh, Catherine Clark, people like Pete Aguilar. People um, in our committee leadership positions that um, 
are um, are very very promising. And uh, you know, there were three there were three members of the House who I thought were candidates to succeed Nancy Pelosi. One's Chris Van Hollen, who's now in the Senate. One's Javier Becerra, Attorney General of California. One is Joe Crowley, who lost his the primary. And but but you, you know that next generation of leaders, it's not so clear right now who's going to emerge. But I think it's fair to say these next two years are going to be a period of testing and jockeying and, and you know, assessment for uh, for what that next generation looks like, because the changing of the guard on the Democratic side surely is coming. Well, we, you mentioned James Clyburn. I mean, it's interesting how much uh, his one decision made in this final election, because I think almost everybody agrees without him, Joe Biden would probably not be the president elect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll, uh, I, I tell you, I had a, I had an assignment uh, 15 years ago with a, along with Alexis Herman, the former Secretary of Labor, and she and I were asked to uh, chair a commission to figure out what to do about the nomination process. And you, you may remember, we, uh, New Hampshire and Iowa were just uh, dead set on remaining their first in the nation status and not giving in on that period, that, that kind of influence they had. And we, uh, we in the end struck a compromise. We said, all right, we're going to leave Iowa and New Hampshire where they are, but we're going to insist on two new states, two new states. And what were they? One was South Carolina and one was Nevada. And it was said of us back then, what a cop out. You know, it's too bad you couldn't have done something more uh, significant in terms of that primary calendar. Well, I... Uh, I just rest my case looking at South Carolina this year and the difference it made. Sometimes, uh, even when you don't get everything you want, the changes that you make do uh, bear fruit. Well, one of the interesting things about this election was <laughs> how many people voted. And that's a good sign because uh, not only did more Democrats vote than ever before, but also more Republican votes were accounted. And so uh, in many respects, we can say the, uh, the uh, system is working in the sense that people were more active, were more involved. That's right. I think uh, that will be the conclusion as we look at this. The uh, the turnout on the Democratic side was uh, something we, uh, I think, are going to be proud of, about, about what was achieved, even under pandemic conditions, where we were observing certain public health constraints that the other side was not. Um, but, you know, there was a surge on the Republican side as well. And... Um, and it was Trump related. It was, I think it's, I think we're going to find out that though Trump didn't win the election, a lot of the, um, a lot of the new voters were, were Trump oriented and that um, made it very close in a lot of states. And it, um, and it pulled down some of our other Republican candidates. All of these things are just so close that uh, the, the differences uh, can be pretty small and still significant. And, and, but, but I think, um, I think this is going to be an election where we find that, um, an increased turnout was enjoyed on both sides. Our guest is uh, Congressman David Price. We have one final segment on Carolina newsmakers, and we'll sort of wrap up and review what he is looking for during the next uh, uh, this next couple of weeks, uh, which is sort of a lame duck session and a reorganization period. And we'll do that when we return with more here on Carolina newsmakers. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No. I'm asking it questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. 
Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Another reminder that this program is heard in two different forms. Many of the stations hear a half-hour version, and uh, thus you miss two segments. They are available on carolinanewsmakers.com, and you can go back and hear those. And we've had uh, some very interesting comments from our guest, Congressman David Price, recently elected to his 17th term, representing North Carolina's 4th District. Well, uh, you know, late duck sessions are always interesting. And uh, we are getting ready to, to uh, get back into session. And uh, uh, there are a lot of concerns, a lot of interest, and there will be a lot of uh, names being tossed about and so forth. Any prominent North Carolinians that you think will be uh, uh, in line for positions in the new Biden administration? Yes. I, I, I don't want to speculate publicly particularly about, about that, but uh, we have a lot of talent in this state. And... Uh, I'm in a position to know who some of the folks are who uh, will be th thought about and, and who are putting themselves forward. So I, I do uh, I do expect to uh, to see some of our uh, uh, fellow North Carolinians uh, take on responsibilities. Uh, and we're going to have some uh, reinforcements in the Congress as well with two fine new members, uh, Deborah Ross from uh, Raleigh and uh, Kathy Manning from Greensboro. Uh, joining us to uh, bring our Democratic delegation up to up to five members. The uh, uh, issues that will come up during this lame duck session are likely to focus, uh, first of all, on COVID-19 and the economic relief. Anything else that might happen during this period of time of significance? Yes. What we absolutely have to do is do the budget for next year. We uh, are... Uh, into the fiscal year already, which started on October 1. We passed, uh, I, I'm the chairman of the Transportation and Housing Subcommittee. I and my 11 uh, co-chairs, uh, fellow chairs, uh, convened in July in masked and distance form in D.C. and marked up our bills, passed our bills. So these bills have passed this, the House, most of them have. And uh, the Senate has done nothing on uh, appropriations. And here we now are now over a month into the new fiscal year. So it's absolutely essential. We're operating on what we call a continuing resolution. That is, uh, that just kind of keeps things chugging along at last year's level. But that expires on uh, December 11th. And at that point, the government shuts down if we've not done something. So that's the absolutely must-do item in the lame duck session. Hopefully to get the bills in place for the full fiscal year, but at a bare minimum to pass another continuing resolution that gets us over into the new Congress. 
So far, President Biden has indicated uh, certainly holding out the olive branch and trying to uh, end the divisiveness that we've had for the last uh, eight years and, and, and uh, end some of the partisanship that is uh, partisan rhetoric that's been going on. What are some of the pieces of advice that you might give to Congressman, uh, uh, to uh, President Biden, as far as continuing and enforcing this, this uh, line of fault? Well, I... Uh... I very much hope that uh, President Biden can uh, can do a couple of things. One is uh, to, uh, to to show that America is back, as we said earlier in the program. And, and there are some areas of, of restoration and repair that are absolutely essential, uh, I guess, starting with America's role in the world and our alliances and our leadership worldwide, also the uh, the uh, serious matter of, of climate change and the need to get back in the in the business of controlling um, greenhouse gas emissions and and so much more um, so so there needs to be a show of reassurance that America is back and that uh, we are determined to crush this virus and to bring the economy back secondly uh, Biden needs to figure out how to unify the country if that's at all possible and it's looking now like he's not going to have much help in that regard from President Trump. I think every day that Trump doesn't uh, cooperate in the transition and that he indicates this kind of bitter end attitude, it makes it harder. But hopefully uh, not every Republican uh, thinks that way or acts that way. And uh, how Mitch McConnell thinks and acts is gonna be critically important, but also others in the Senate, uh, including our North Carolina senators. So um, that unifying the country is, uh, it is a country that's uh, in need of, um, of healing. And, and of reassurance. And um, Joe Biden personally is the man for the moment, I think, to do that, given his own personal history of loss and how he's dealt with it, his, his faith, his, uh, you know, he is, he, this is, this can be his moment, or I hope it can be, because the country desperately needs what he has to offer. Well, he certainly has made, uh, all the statements he's made so far are, indicate that, uh, uh, this is the course that he would like to charge forward right. with and, and uh, make happen. And, and I think the uh, many, many, many people in the country are, uh, will welcome this and be excited about this and uh, hope that it happens and happens uh, not only on local level, but also in the international level, because uh, we've sort of turned our back on some of our close allies for many, many years in the last uh, four years. Yes, we have, you know, in a way that uh, has puzzled them and distressed them. I'm the chairman, uh, once again, of the House Democracy Partnership, which is a bipartisan group of members that reach out parliament to parliament and help build capacity in developing democracies around the world. And, uh, you know, we've never, uh, we've never pretended that we have it right, always. Uh, and in fact, we've had some pretty hard questions to answer about, uh, about our president and the direction of our country these last four years. Um, I look forward to being able to be reassured once again that America is on the side of human rights. America is on the side of aspiring democracies. America is a challenge to autocrats. And, and um, I look forward to working on that in um, my own uh, focused way with this uh, parliamentary outreach. Duke, uh, Duke University and UNC Chapel Hill's uh, health services both are playing key roles in the development of new uh, uh, therapeutics for the COVID-19 situation. 
Uh, do you anticipate the uh, Congress providing more funds for those two institutions? Yes. Yes, the, the funds will go to uh, whoever's at the forefront of vaccine and, uh, and treatment uh, development and those two institutions, every indication there, they have been and will be at the forefront of that development. So uh, yes, there'll be, there'll be funding available. We should make it uh, generously available to whoever has the answers here. And I, I plan to push for that very strongly. I suspect no congressman in the country has two better medical centers in their district than you do with, with That's right. UNC. They, they I'm are, playing, I'm playing a strong hand. <laughs> they're playing a strong hand and they, they are, have an international uh, reference uh, along with the School of Public Health at Chapel Hill. Uh, those uh, are playing a key role in health and uh, the uh, safety of the citizens of this country. Well, we've got about uh, uh, 30 seconds for you to sort of wrap up and say uh, what's top of your agenda for next week. Well, we're going back and we're going to elect our leadership for the next Congress. So I'm uh, trying to figure that out, figure out uh, what the what the uh, leadership should look like. But I'm, I'm eager to get going. Uh, you know, we've uh, we're in a tough time as a country. And, and so uh, there is a there is a responsibility on us to, to, to put the pandemic down, to get the economy back and to break some new ground in areas that I and very uh, concerned about and that my district is very concerned about, namely our transportation infrastructure and affordable housing for all of our people. So uh, uh, many challenges ahead, but thank you for the uh, chance to discuss these things and uh, we'll look forward to staying in touch as, uh, as the whole story unfolds. Well, thank you for taking time to share your thoughts with us. Uh, Congressman David Price, uh, recently reelected for his 17th term as the representative for the fourth district of uh, state of North Carolina. Program has been produced by Jason Kong and he'll have another interesting guest for us again next week on the same group or station all across North Carolina. And uh, again, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear just that and uh, enjoy any of the past programs that have been on the, the uh, network before. So the next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Carolina Newsmakers.